On this episode of Boss Files, Kara Swisher, fearless tech journalist, entrepreneur, and founder of Recode. It's a long life, I always say. You know, I think if I'm inevitable, I'm just there and I don't go away. So I'm inevitable. I'm inevitable. She presses and presses the biggest names in tech for answers. And a lot of the time, they hate that. But she still gets the big gets. There probably is no such thing as privacy anymore, but there is such a thing as control of your data. So where did her unwavering confidence come from? I ask her. Because you've been told from the beginning of time through lots of different things that you are not as good. You're just, you know, and that you have to look pretty or you have to look, you have to be quiet or don't speak up or you're bossy or whatever. And I just didn't care. And I think part of being gay had part to you do with it. Yeah, I do. Because if they weren't going to like me for that, what do I care? Like, I, 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 I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about the pleasing people. Plus, does she think we'd even be in this predicament today if more of the big tech companies were founded by women? And what she plans to do with the rest of her life? Hint, it's not about work. Here's my conversation with Kara Swisher. Hi, Kara Swisher. Hi. Poppy Harlan. Thanks for doing this. We call each other our full names. We, full names. Okay. It is 5.30 on a Friday night. Yes. Both of us would like to be in Brooklyn. Yes. With our significant others, with yes. a glass of wine. Yes. But, no, not me, but go ahead. But a glass of wine for me is right, what okay, I would like. Good. And uh, But I'm more happy to be here doing this with you. Thank you for doing this. No problem. My friend. Let me read you some of the words used to describe you. Oh, no. Is this for my mom? No, I didn't call her, but I, <laughs> I should have. Hush. Time out. Let's call mom. Uh, text tough-as-nails journalist, a preeminent arbiter of status in Silicon Valley. Right. Her journalism makes Silicon Valley tremble, mm-hmm. holding tech titans accountable. New York Magazine called you the most feared and well-liked journalist mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley. And you have just, you know, a, a few Twitter followers at yes. 1.3 million. Yes, I do. So first question, is Machiavelli right? Is it better to be feared than loved? <laughs> both. Why not be both? I mean, I think that was an interesting and weird way to phrase it. I think what they were saying is that I, I'm not, you know, a lot of people when they're tough, they're seen, especially women, they get names. I don't know if you can use names like that, but, you know, they get called names. And I Imagine think, that. Yeah, exactly. Never what happened to me. Um, misogyny <laughs> exists. I can't believe it. Um, but I think I'm very fair with people, and I'm sometimes funny, but at the same time, I'm pretty tough on the people I cover. And so uh, I think the smart people get it and like it, and mm-hmm. so they don't find it objectionable when I hold them to account. Barry Diller says of you, people are afraid of her and they trust her. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like you agree. Yeah. Uh, h- how did you make that possible? Well, I think one of the things is I learn a lot. I, I I, I do a lot of reporting, and I think everything I do is based in reporting, and I'm a pretty good reporter, and I've broken a lot of stories, and so I had the background in tech, and I'd been covering it since the 90s, and so when you have the reporting, it's really hard to argue with people when they're doing a really good job talking to everybody, and I talk to everybody, and so that was one part of it. The second part is that it's very hard to stay on their talking points. You know, like a lot of business people, as you know, you interview them, the talking points are really hard to get people off of. But I knew where they came from. I knew how they started. I knew all kinds of stuff about them. You knew them when they were babies. That's right. Or not billionaires, I guess. I knew them before (laughs) they had billions of dollars in private planes. And so I sort of have an idea of what makes them tick more than other people. And so that's just just being there early. But you've said a lot of these guys, and I say it's mainly guys guys. still Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley that run these companies, are babies, your word, Mm -hmm. 
uh, and that you call them paper mache, they just wilt. They wilt, yeah. Why? I think, well, because I think what happens is when they be, when they became powerful, they were very young, and so they didn't have a lot of people pushing up against them or have a lot of life experiences. And so what happens when you become really wealthy or powerful, mm-hmm. uh, not powerful, they don't think of themselves as powerful. They When they become, people are sort of adoring of them, they become celebrities in a way, yeah. and they did, they have been, all of them. Um, they People lick them up and down every day. And so they get used to it. So they get used lick to being them up and yes, down that's how I look at it. Yes. There you go. That's they a quote them, I haven't heard. You know, from and they're before. like, "Oh, I'm so smart" and this and that. And if someone comes along and says that wasn't too smart, they're surprised by it. You say the early days of covering, covering Silicon Valley was like covering Hollywood before there was a Hollywood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, let's talk about these guys. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos, Jerry yeah. Yang, Mark Andreessen, Steve Jobs. Let's yep. start with Steve Jobs yeah. because you have said of him you actually wrote recently, I've always thought the problem with Mr. Jobs was he had too much heart. Yes. People thought he was heartless. I thought that, that wasn't a really good... If, if you knew him, one of the reasons he didn't suffer fools is he cared a lot about the whether it was the design or the point or something else. And so instead of being heartless, it was a very different... It was too much. And he, he cared too much. He had too much passion and didn't allow people... If you weren't as passionate as him... He disliked you for that, or he didn't suffer mistakes or errors. And so it came across in a different way than what I think he meant to get out there. And so it's, re- it's pretty easy just to call him a jerk or say that he, you know, he was cold. He was not cold at all. He was actually very, um, he had a lot of heat coming off of him. Jeff Bezos. Do you remember the cooler, first time you met cooler. him? Cooler, Yep, I do. What was um, it like? You know, he was super earnest. He was trying to create this. He had a small, I actually went to visit one of his original headquarters. He was looking for an office in a sort of crappy part of Seattle. Um, and Seattle wasn't what it is today then. Um, and he moved out there for logistical reasons and because he was in New York. He was at a D.B. Uh, D. E. Shaw. Um, and he was really earnest. He was trying really hard. He wore these really bad pleated khakis and oversized shirts. And he was, you know, he was working in the warehouse and he was trying to create this idea of the world's biggest bookstore. And that was what he was focused on was, was this. And so he was like any other entrepreneur. He was a little older than most of them, um, but super earnest, super sort of, sort of not very complex. But obviously he's shown himself to be one of the best business people on the Internet. Mark? Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. First time you met him. Yes. Any idea? Yeah. This no. is what he'd be well, able to build. Well, he, he it was pretty. It was not small when I met him. It wasn't big. It was, definitely wasn't big. I met him in an office in Palo Alto, and it was. He had just come out there from Harvard. He had just quit Harvard and had started getting investments. And some people said you should meet him. Yeah. And I had heard he was kind of an arrogant jerk, and so I said I don't want to meet him. I heard he's a jerk. He's like a. T- there were so many startups at the time. Like he was one of many, and he wasn't. He didn't stand. Facebook was. Interesting, but wasn't the biggest, essentially. Or MySpace was getting a lot of attention. Other things were Friendster. You don't even remember these. I remember these. Um, I'm, not, so I'm not 20. I said, I don't know. I heard he's a jerk and whatever. And when I walked into, when I was sitting in the office, he had a CEO named Owen Van Atta, And Owen was trying to get us together. And, you know, he needed attention at the time. A lot of these people needed to be written about in the Wall Street Journal where I was working. And he walked in and I I said, hi, and he goes, I hear you You think I'm a jerk, an arrogant jerk. And I'm like, well, I don't know you well enough to know if you are. You probably are. That's what I heard. So it was super awkward. And then we went on a walk. He likes to walk around Palo Alto. So His CEO, Sheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. said of you a few years ago, 2014, New York Magazine piece, it's a constant joke in Silicon Valley when people write memos for them to say, I hope Kara never sees this. And I think this gets to like one of my fundamental questions and why I have admired you from afar and now mm-hmm. call you a friend and wanted you to, to be here mm-hmm. doing this. 
how, how do you get the biggest gets when they matter? Well, I think one of the things that's important is I think of things in terms of narratives, like stories in terms whether it's something that's happening at Yahoo or the Uber thing. I think of them as as literature in a weird way. You know, Uber had this sort of evil villain at the center and kind of I think of it like that. And so right now I'm talking about tech responsibility and Facebook is the obvious character in the middle of it. And so one of the things I do is I'm a really good beat reporter. And so I, I cultivate relationships. I cultivate sources. People trust me because I spend a lot of time learning. And I, a lot of reporters just are very a mile wide and a foot deep. I try really hard to understand these people's businesses and their points of view. And I understand who was where. And so I spend a lot of time doing basic block and tackle reporting. And I don't think a lot of people do that. I know it sounds crazy, but a lot of, it's, a, it's gotten to be such a light culture in that regard. Why? I don't know. It, just are reporting reporters is different. abdicating their responsibility? Yeah, I think, no, there's some great reporters. Wow, there's some amazing stuff being done by all kinds of reporters. But I think I really was just a really good beat reporter, the way, and that matters a lot to these people. And they're just like any other industry. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. I was there when it began, which is, you know, it's sort of nice to be somewhere But when things, when, when uh, Google was in the garage. I met them when they were in the garage. The literal garage. The literal garage of Susan Wojcicki, who now runs YouTube. Yeah. So I visited them there, and then I knew them, you know, they were all sort of jockeying to get bigger, but they weren't big at the time. And so I, I just spent a lot of time, and I had a lot of interest in them, and other people would come in and do a story, but I'd always be there. And you so stayed. I stayed. Persistent. And then people trust you to give you memos or if there's problems at a company or, you know, like around Uber, for example, when when there was the whole issue around the executives passing around this, this rape uh, file about this woman being raped, this medical file. And I had heard about it, and I couldn't believe they would do that, but I, you know... Things like that I find, I find out about, and then people trust me because a lot of people feel badly if something terrible is happening somewhere. A quick rapid fire on tech leaders. Not, not name association, but this. What tech CEO do you admire the most? Oh, that's hard. Well, Steve Jobs, I think, was the most interesting. I, I don't necessarily admire him. I don't know who I admire. I like Mark Benioff. I think he's really interesting. I think some of the stuff that he voices about responsibility is an area I like to talk about, and I think he's an adult. Um, I like uh, Tim Cook quite a bit. Tim um, Apple? Tim Apple. <laughs> Tapple. Tapple. It's a new drink. It's delicious. <laughs> what do you, uh, which one is more hype than substance? Oh, gosh. None of them, really. They're not light people. These are not, these are not, it's not Hollywood here. It's not TV. Sorry, Poppy. You know what I mean? <laughs> not TV. Not TV, yeah. No, these are substantive people, most of the people who run these companies. I like Brian Chesky, who runs Airbnb quite a bit. I think he's interesting. Aaron Levy, who runs Box. Um, uh, all kinds of people. You know, woman who ran um, TaskRabbit, Stacey Philpott-Brown, mm, yeah. I liked a lot. She's, she was at Google. I knew her at Google. And then when she got the job, I wrote about it. Who has surprised you the most? Meaning how negative? Either way, upside or downside. Um, Just not what you thought you were going to get. You know, I think certain people aren't the way you think they are. Jeff Bezos has this sort of jovial personality Hmm. seeming outside, and he's pretty tough. And I always knew he was tough because I saw that side of him. And I thought that was interesting that he presented as less as friendly, you know what I mean? Because he's a really tough businessman. Um, I think uh, I had a hard time with Bill Gates initially. Um, I don't think he encountered a lot of women reporters mm. or something. But eventually, we have a, a decent relationship, but I haven't seen him in a while. Um, you know, I like, I like whoever I'm covering, I guess. I have a pretty good relationship with Sheryl Sandberg, um, who I've known since she was early at Google. Susan Wojcicki, who yeah. runs YouTube. Is there anyone that you have not been able to get? Not so far. Not so Never. far. Yeah, no, Elon Musk. I've had a long history I with mean. Elon. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about Elon Musk because you you have you have said about Elon Musk, I believe that he's sort of the id 
Yes, the id. Why? Yeah. Well, he's he's a lot. He's full of creativity. Like, look, whatever you think about all this crazy stuff he does, and some of it is due to personal issues, I think, or or I think his creativity is, is unquestioned, the things he's created. You know, whatever happens to Tesla, everyone's always like, oh, it's going to go down, it's going to go up, it's going to, you know, they argue about it. The fact that it exists is amazing. He's doing something substantive, or and then he's doing the boring company and the space things, and so I find him incredibly creative. I like Evan Spiegel, who runs Snapchat, because I like, I whenever I talk to him, it, I have interesting discussions about where things are going, and obviously he was, uh, I call him the chief product officer of Facebook, because he comes up with all the ideas, and then Mark oh, man. steals them. More from my interview with Kara Swisher after the break. You've given very important, very tough coverage of Mark and mm-hmm. Facebook. Recently, yes. But he keeps talking to you. Do you think of, he yeah. will? <laughs> yeah. Do you think he'll keep talking to you? Uh, I think maybe not this week. Um, but, you know, it's a, long time. it's a long life, I always say. You know, I think if I'm inevitable. I'm just there, and I don't go away. So I'm inevitable. I'm inevitable. That's, you know, I'm just sitting there, and he'll just wait, and I'll just keep writing. And so um, I, what I'm hoping to do is get through to him on this idea of responsibility, which I started writing about two years ago because yeah. I saw them starting to have real impact on the world, especially after the election, yep. um, and then not take responsibility for it. And now, right. today, with this terrible tragedy, you see... In New Zealand, the mass yeah, shooting. exactly. You see the impact of these these technologies and who's running the show at these places. I mean, you call, you call it the education of Mark Zuckerberg, yeah. the expensive education yes. of Mark Zuckerberg. for so the rest of us, not for him. So you are trying to teach him. I'm trying to get through to him. I'm do not you, teaching him anything. Do you just, think you will? Yeah, I think I have an impact. I think when I say he has to pay attention, he has to change, he cannot take these things lightly. If I keep repeating myself, I, and I do it, it sinks in with these people. I do believe that. And so that's the only way reporters can get through, either through... Um, just continually saying the same thing, which is you have a greater responsibility than you realize, and you need to, to take you it. You built this. You built this, and it's created all kinds of havoc, all, so all sorts of great things. I love technology, but at the same time, you have a responsibility to what you've done. You can't just have all the benefits, the money, mm-hmm. the, the fame, the power, and not have all the responsibility that happens with your platform. Has Facebook, Twitter, social media in general made our world a better place? Not today. A safer place? No. Not now. A smarter place? No. I thought it would. I thought it it has the potential to. So where, I mean, where do we go from here then? You know, it was interesting after this New Zealand thing, after it showed how much this murderer was using the internet to to broadcast. That's what he used it for, the most part, his ridiculous and insane ideas about the world. Someone said humans don't deserve the internet, right? It's not the it's not the internet's fault. It's how humans use mm. it, or we're not ready for the internet. And there's this great uh, technologist in Silicon Valley named Jaron Lanier, who's a wonderful technologist, a really interesting thinker, and he felt like the internet, and especially uh, social media, was the greatest experiment in human communication in history, and it's failing. Um, and but it's not the t- tools. The, it is the it's tools. The user. It's the users and what happens when they're, they have a tool that can go global. They use it for bad things. So how do we write that ship? I mean, I read your column mm-hmm. all the time and follow you and watch your reporting. And it, it does seem like your effort really is in, you know, how can the, this amazing technology and these tools be used to make the world a better place, whether yeah. it's talking about Benioff and ethics and should we have a chief ethic, should all of these companies have chief ethics officers mm-hmm. or... With power. Chief with ethics power, officer with, with power, real not power. just as PR. Yeah. But it's, are you optimistic that if we're sitting here five, ten years from now, 
the, your answer to those questions I just asked you about, do they make it a better world, a safer world, a smarter world, could be yes. It could be. But, you know, I just saw on Broadway here the network. Do you remember network? It's how a, it, yeah, the movie and then the remarkable Broadway play. Everything that was in that, and it was a satire, has come true. Like the way we think about what, that was supposed to be a satire at the time it was done. Sybil the soothsayer, all these different things they had. It is what ha- what has happened, right? It's it's broadcasting our worst impulses as human beings, and it, it allows a level of virality and speed, and in, you know that is really disturbing, and it appeals to the worst parts of humanity. It doesn't have to. It can be used for education, for tolerance, for learning that we're all a lot alike, the more than you think. What it's been used for instead is just a cacophony of awfulness that that doesn't have to be that way if we if the people who made it designed it in the right way. Is and what they don't want to do, they don't want to control it. Why? They don't want to? No, they don't. They There's don't want really to. not a desire to? Well, look at Jack Dorsey. Like, he's like, anyone can say anything on my platform. Like, if anyone can say anything, everybody does. Like, it's, it's as if... I call it the purge every night. Like, it's every night. It's the purge. If there's no rules, then there's no rules. And so people tend to, to degenerate into the worst impulses. Can you pinpoint, have you pinpointed one point where it flipped and where it went awry, where something could have been done in mm-hmm. the building of these companies and the shaping, and, and by the way, the regulating or non-government regulation, well, there's been no regulation of these companies. Zero. Where we wouldn't have ended up here. You know, I think it was probably this way with when we had trains or when we started cars or, you know what I mean? Every industry that is groundbreaking has, goes through this period of craziness. Yeah, except I think they wanted to make them safer and better. Not initially. No, they did not. They, they did were not. forced to. They were forced to. Everybody, chemicals. Every, you know, you go through every one of these great moments in, in history when there's a technological leap. It's usually accompanied by disaster. Forced. Or forced or something. And so regulation is brought, like the telephone industry. AT&T was eventually broken up. Microsoft was eventually stopped in its monopolistic practices. And so you look at this and you, you see this unfettered growth, which is great. It's been an amazing thing. And all this creativity. And we have these phones. And we have all this. And then you see that they also didn't put rules of the road in place to, to, to run it. And so the question is, how can we put those rules in? Who should put them in? How do we stop it? My worry is we can't stop it because it's like pushing back the ocean. I think your column that struck me the most, other than your personal one recently mm-hmm. about having a stroke, which right. we'll, we'll get to all of that, that I don't think a lot of people know about mm-hmm. you and death and how, you, how it has shaped you. But before that, you, you, the one you wrote about, I thought the web would stop hate, not spread it. Yeah. I did. I did at the time. It's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable thing. When I first saw the internet, I thought, oh, my God, everyone in the world can talk to each other. What an astonishing thing. We can communicate over vast distances. We get to know each other. It's, it, but what it's done is it's split us because it's so easy to be manipulated because of the way it's been designed. And it's designed to, to do just this. It has not been designed with the thought in mind to control it. And these people don't they don't want to control it, but if you don't have, I, I compare it, I, I've done it a number of times, I think I did in a column, it's like a city, someone's built a city, yeah. Mark or, or Jack or whoever you want to pick, has built a city without street signs, without sewage, without police, without garbage men. Imagine that city. It, it's not a good city to live in, but they collect all the rent on everything. Is it fair to ask, I'll ask it anyways, mm-hmm. if women had built these cities, if women had built these platforms, largely it's women, very fair to ask. would we be sitting in the same predicament today? No, I don't think so. Why? Um, make, make the case. Well, because I think a lot of people who built, like, for example, Twitter, all the bullying that goes on. Um, I don't think anyone who designed those things ever felt unsafe a day in their life. Women, people of color, marginalized people feel unsafe and feel unsafe on Twitter. The people that designed it didn't 
they, you have millions of stories where they're like, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But these people never felt unsafe and, and so therefore aren't thinking em- empathetically about um, how they're going to design these things. Like everything is about architecture. You know, even if it's digital, it's about how you build it. And if you allow a platform that allows anonymousness, mm-hmm. um, an, an ability to go viral, uh, very few rules in place, and the rules are very haphazard, this is what you're going to get. Like nobody should be surprised that this has happened. They're all balking at it, but but yeah. not a not lot. Not Mark now. Now he wants to go towards privacy, right? Now his new his new pivot to privacy. Can we talk about that yes. and what that'll mean? Yeah. So does that mean that if there are more threats, for example, online and and things like that, that it'll actually be harder to track because a lot of it'll be well, private? Well, except that's it's not the viral. Knock. There's you get rid of the virality of it. If it, it maybe they don't get they don't get people can't find each other as easily. But can it hurt investigators? Yes, they, and they can police? also go skulk off into different dank parts of the internet. Um, the problem is when it's public, you have issues, and when it's private, you have issues. I, rem- I actually do remember when Facebook Live happened, when they showed it to me for the first time, my reaction was, someone's going to kill someone on this. And it's that was show. the first thing you thought. And I said it to them, and they're like, they, oh, Kara, you're so negative. I'm like, no, humanity is awful as far, in my experience, if you've seen history of, of anything. And, and so I remember thinking, this is dangerous. Without, without tools in place to control people's behavior or to stop them from their worst impulses. And they thought it was going to be all Chewbacca moms. That's what they thought. They really, truly did. Same thing with YouTube. I really liked it, and then I thought, oh, people can put anything up? Well, you know what's going to happen. You know, you just know. You just know if people are... And it also was the first time people got a voice because there had been so many gatekeepers in the way of media, and then suddenly anyone could say anything, good and bad. Both. Do they think they're media companies? They don't. They are media companies. Right. Well, I yes. call them media companies, but they don't like to call them. They call themselves tech companies. They want to be protected. Because then the, right, because then the responsibility of a media company. Platform. Whatever happens here happens. What so happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Oh, except it's not Vegas. Yeah, it's not Vegas. And it's when it's not talking yeah. about, you know, blackjack. Uh, so who's going to do something about it? I mean, in Europe, you've seen so much more willingness, GDPR mm-hmm. uh, on the privacy front, the mm-hmm. consumer rights mm-hmm. front. And then you, you watch these like hearings um, on Capitol Hill, and some of the lawmakers know their stuff and are good at questioning. Yeah, most of them are not. But it's astonishing to watch many yeah. of them. Well, they're, they're, they're not Internet savvy, let's just say. And it's not okay, age but they have young staff. I mean, they could. Like, it's not a youth thing. People of different look at one of the best. Charles Grassley is excellent on Twitter, by true. the way. And <laughs> Trump is the most astonishing Twitter tro- troll of all time. And he's good at it. Is Congress going to do anything about it? And if you're, if you were speaking yes. to them, or maybe you are speaking to. to them, what are they going to do? They should pass a privacy bill to start with. We should begin to have smart privacy legislation that is somewhere between uh, something less stringent than maybe GDPR and stuff like that. We can live with that. People can, where consumers benefit and the companies get to thrive, and the small companies, the innovative companies, get to rise. Um, a, a give people at the very baseline. You know, years ago, Scott McNeely said, uh, there's no such thing as privacy, get over it, which was really prescient at the time. Um, and now, of course, people think that there probably is no such thing as privacy anymore, but there is such a thing as control of your data. There is pro- you control. think that there is no such thing as privacy anymore? No, no. You carry a phone around. Do you carry a phone around, Poppy? You do. I do. You're being tracked. You had everywhere. yours during your C-section. Of course, I love it. Yes, I did. <laughs> but I'm saying, no, you, you're giving away certain things for free stuff, and so you understand the trade, but most people don't understand exactly well, how much of a trade it is. Amy, I sat down with Amy Klobuchar, mm-hmm. Senator Amy Klobuchar this week, who's running for president, and mm-hmm. she has, is floating the idea of, I know you just interviewed her, too. Yeah, taxing big tech. Right. What do you think of that? 
That's one way. There's what? lots of ways. Taxing. She was taxing data that they yeah. use, and if they move it to third parties, there's another. There's another idea that you that if uh, Facebook makes a hundred dollars off of you, you get half of that if you want to, or you say no, you can't use my data at all, and therefore you don't get anything, or you don't get the free services, or whatever. You know, you can figure out all kinds of ways. There's, there's also just regulation that you, you, you pay fines. That's what they're doing in Europe. They're paying, yeah. Google paid more in fines than in taxes last year. Something like, it's astonishing. Um, and so there's fines, there's regulatory uh, issues around what's being used. There's all kinds of things. There's antitrust, and that's, I think, where you're gonna see a right. lot of the yeah. action. And then there's Elizabeth Warren, who just wants to break them all up. Is that a good idea, or is no. there, why? It's just too far. And even Marguerite Vestager, who is the head of competition in EU, has been the yeah. toughest on tech, I yeah, think, she of has. all the regulators, thinks it's too far. I would agree with her. Why? Um, like, at, know, at what time are these... Just to wreck these, them? Just to well, I don't know. Does it wreck them? At, at what point are these companies um, too big to fail? Meaning they're such a part of the economy, they're such a part of the the landscape. Well, yeah, nobody's tried regulation yet. Why don't we start with regulation before we decide to, you know, there was regulatory schemes in place that just didn't work, mm. and then you can have relief with that. Yeah. But the idea is to protect small companies and to allow them to have competition and to thrive, and to and to not let the big companies use their immense power to continue to keep their immense power. And so antitrust is another way. There's all these interesting thinkers, uh, uh, including Amy Klobuchar, on antitrust and how it should be uh, uh, put forward and maybe not let Facebook buy so many things. Maybe um, in the future they can't buy. They can't buy Snapchat. They can't buy this. They can't buy that. Um, and so there's w lots of ways to do it. Google does not get to have 90% of the search in Europe or whatever here. Or they don't get to do this. Um, there's lots of ideas, but you know, she, it's pretty, she's, she's a really interesting thinker. So I don't, I like, I like that we're having the discussion about right. it. And I think she's taking it down mm -hmm. really far. That's great. And, you know, people like uh, Alexander uh, Ocasio-Cortez talking about the morality of technology. I, people don't like some of the stuff she's saying, but I like the discussion, right? Yeah. So that's, what's, that's what I find interesting. And nobody was doing this before. And it sounds like that gives you a little bit of hope, at least. Yeah. More from my interview with Kara Swisher after the break. You have... Um equated the tech industry to big tobacco. Some have, yeah. Chemical companies is the way I look at it. More. Okay. Because, I, well, there's the whole addiction thing. That's a whole nother, we could go on about that. Um, yeah, except with big tobacco, we saw more regulation and we saw like half of America quit smoking. Yes, it did. That could happen. People could be like, this is too much, maybe. Well, they online. quit social? I don't know. It's hard because there's all kinds of things they're doing there that are keeping you addicted to it. You don't even realize it. You know, the way that it draws you in, it's a real, it's very difficult to pull off of it. And and myself included. Um, I think the more as car manufacturers, like they were, mm. remember nothing happened in safety mm. in cars until unsafe at any speed. You know, and not everybody was clamoring. Everybody loved cars. Like, nope, everybody wasn't going privacy, privacy, or a car, fixing the cars. But once, you don't have to have wide public anger to say this is the right thing to do. Um, and But you have to preserve innovation at the same time because other countries like China, who have less interest in democracy, could dominate the next stage, and that's definitely a worry. When it comes to privacy, um, one of the, I think, most fascinating displays of the lack of it and what people are willing to do about it is what Jeff Bezos did when his personal text messages yeah, that was good. were exposed to the world. Yeah. Um, and you wrote, I don't love Jeff Bezos in general, but I love Bezos in particular here. Yeah, I do. Tell me why. Because uh, I thought he, he, he pushed back. He was like being subjected to essentially blackmail. And he decided to, just like David Letterman did when that happened to him, 
you know, he's the world's richest man. He doesn't have to put up with anything. Like he, but he could have sort of quietly gone up in the corner and paid people off, and that was the end of it. But I think it was good. He has the power to do it, and he exercised his immense power, and he said, no way, I'm not letting you do this. You can't use it. And then he went after the people who went after him. I, good for him. Those people are like at the bottom of the bottom of the barrel, of right? The bottom. They're, the, they're just awful. They're like mold and mildew, like the National Enquirer and all their little friends and all the the weirdnesses and the blackmail, and he just was like, no, I'm not going to, no, no thank you. So let's talk about the story of Kara. Mm-hmm. Okay. True or false, you got hired by the Washington Post for basically calling them and telling them their reporting sucked. Yes, <laughs> yes, Larry Kramer, he was a Metro editor. They had done a story that I had done, and they had gotten things wrong, and it annoyed me. How old were you? Uh, 18, 19. Very young. So yeah. they hired you? They hired me as a stringer. Maybe I was 19. Yeah, I, I was I was just irritated that this was the Washington Post and they had errors and it made me angry. And so I took the bus down there. But you don't really like working for people, which no. is why you don't work for anyone. Right I do. Now. I work for Vox Media. Oh, I do. Okay. But yeah. you you left the journal and you built your own. Yes, I did. I'm not a good employee. Huge brand. Uh, I think it's it, important to know who you are and, and what you, you're not good at. Okay. So, so you said, I didn't like working for people. I didn't like having stupid bosses, mm-hmm. of which there are so many, your words. I took a negative thing, turned it into a positive. Yeah. I don't, I'm not, but I, I, if I'm being nice to people, I'm not a good employee. I'm just not. I'm not, I'm not just not a good employee. Why? Because when people say things like, I don't, why don't, should I listen to you? Like, I have ideas. Like, why, why, I just have ideas and I have good ideas. And if they failed, I failed at them and not anybody else. And I think the way our work environment is, it, it stifles creativity. And so I think I'm a creative person and I have ideas. And so I want, often in these bureaucracies, you have to sort of wait your turn and, Especially if you're a woman, you have to be quiet and be cooperative, and it doesn't get you anywhere. And so I was like, let's just remove the parts I don't like, and I'll build the parts I do. It could have failed. But how did you? It, it totally yeah. could have failed, yeah. right? And that leaving security no, fail. for me is terrifying, right? Right. That's Poppy, just, get out there. You need that's Jeff just Zucker me. For. I Goodbye, need, Jeff. yes, I need Jeff. See ya. Come on. <laughs> but you say early on, it's just you an knew, empty shirt. You not not even close. That you Whatever. you knew early on you would be bigger than your bosses. Yeah. Really? I did. I thought, yeah, because I saw the inter- I think the internet affected me. You could see that you could, you didn't need that these media companies that were gatekeepers were not going to determine everything. There wasn't some bunch of white guys at the top that were going to decide who was going to be big and who wasn't. They didn't. Well, why they didn't did have you control. have that confidence? Because I saw what the internet did, the good parts of the internet that you could broadcast to the world and you could broadcast yourself. I think I just, I just, I like myself. I think it's really unusual. You know, I just like myself and I think I'm smart and I and I say it. And that bothers people, and I'm loud. I'm not that Why loud. do you think that bothers people? Well, women are supposed to be friendly and get along and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not unfriendly. I just, I want what I want. You're I'm not unfriendly at all. You're very warm. Yeah. But you're very sure of yourself yes. and very confident. Yes. Yeah. But I'm good And at I don't know I do. why so many successful women, myself included, struggle well, with that. Well, you're good at what you do. Why don't you say it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, it's interesting. No, I, I really don't. And I wish I could figure it out so I could tell my daughter. Well, it's because you've been told from the beginning of time through lots of different things that you are not as good. You're just, you know, and that you have to look pretty or you have to look, you have to be quiet or don't speak up or you're bossy or whatever. And I just didn't care. And I think part of being gay had part to, to you do, do with it. Yeah, I do. Because if they weren't going to like me for that, what do I care? Like, I, 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 I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about the pleasing people. You've talked about early, in the early days of covering tech, sort of having, having to hide that part of yourself. No, or, I didn't. Or really. not be. 
I know your mother wasn't comfortable with she it She was at not. First. Very typical, yeah, very typical. But I didn't care. I didn't care. It was what I was, so I wasn't going to argue. You know, I used to tell my mom she wasn't, when she didn't buy equally nice presents for my uh, girlfriends at the time, um, I would say I, nobody gets presents if, if you don't do it equally. And I would, I would always give her a hard time because, and she would always say things like, oh, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'm like, you know what, I don't negotiate with terrorists. Like, you have to treat me equally or... We're done. So, so yeah. your mom was treating you unequally yeah. because you were gay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a lot. But that's, things have changed so much for gay people. But that's a really big deal, Carrie. You're like, yeah, was, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Accepted. But how did you get through that? It was because ex- I thought it was wrong all the whole time. I never thought it was right. And I think, you know, like a lot of people, they, you know, being gay, when I, was, when, I was, when, it, when I was coming out, it was shameful. You know, people made you feel shameful. All the, all the messaging from movies and TV shows was, you know, something wrong with you. And I was like, nothing wrong with me. When, like, did you, when did you come out? I don't think I've four ever... Four years old. No, I'm kidding. No, I knew it when I was four. I had lots of boyfriends. It was you knew good. it when you were four? Yeah, sure did. So when did you tell the world? When did you my tell tw- yourself? My early 20s, very early 20s, college to some friends. But it was hard back then. Something shifted really dramatically because of AIDS and because of ACT UP and gay people just not having it anymore. Like, that's enough. You know, that's enough. And mm-hmm. there's still... St- believe me, it's not over by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, I have children now, and I, you know, no, and everyone thinks it's great, or a lot of people think it's great, or more people think it it's great. It is great to have children. To. Right, it yes. is. But I remember one of... I had a relative who was, who was uh, very religious and very anti-gay, um, and called me and said you know, sent me something that was offensive. And I said, please stop sending me this stuff. It was this some, is a family member. It's a family member. Um, and, uh, and sent me some older family member, sent me something very offensive. He was, he, he, he was, he was trying to be mean well in some way, but it was like anti-gay. It was an anti-gay piece of literature and how sinful it was. He was very religious. And I said, don't send these to me anymore. Will you please stop? I can't speak to you if you keep doing this. It's offensive and abusive. And um, and he, there had been just been a poll about gay people, and he said, you know, 50% of the, the country doesn't believe in gay marriage. And I said, how did you lose that 49% so quickly? And he was like, what? I said, it used to be 100. It used to be 99.999%. Now it's 50, and it's going to be 30, and 20, and 10, and then it's you and your nasty group of people, intolerant people, mm-hmm. who are going to sit in the corner and just have to take it because they, people are done with this. And so I always look at it that way, that you don't, they tend, people tend to try to pull you down and people don't know their power, I guess. I sound like Oprah. <laughs> That's I a good Oprah. thing. Yeah, who doesn't? Who doesn't? It just doesn't seem to me like anyone gets under your skin. No. So are you vulnerable? Mm, for what? Yeah, for my kids. Yeah, I think I'm around my kids. Yeah, I'm worried about them and their lives, but they'll be okay. I mean, look, I have like two, six, foot tall white men in America who have money. I don't feel like they're, they're way ahead of most of the human race. So I feel like they're on a good trajectory to do okay. How old are your boys? 16 and 13. You were just doing college tours. Starting 16 to. 16 year old. Yes, yes. Are, you, are I, you paying? No. To get your no. kid into? No. Okay, just he for the record there. He has a crappy ACT, then he's going to go to a crappy college. Just making sure. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. That story is crazy. Insane. As a parent, are you like? Can you imagine doing um, calculating and all? No, I can't. But mm, you know, nothing crazy. surprises me anymore. No, you have said about your sons. This struck me that you want them to be emotionally articulate. Articulate, yeah. They are. They're very articulate. So, how did you do that? Well, lesbians raise all men. I think they're really good. It's a good combination. Um, no, they, we just spent a lot of time. Um, I'll send my son over. Yes, I will. Yeah. Just we spent a lot of time letting them be vulnerable, letting them talk about that. I think they're very masculine. If you know, I think they're not like 
we just want them to say what they think. And I think men actually don't get to say what they think a lot. You know, they don't. They the, just the, don't. They're not, the, the, the society doesn't give them permission to be as vulnerable yeah. as they could be. I think that's right. But it's not soft. It's just like they don't get to, they have to have a certain thing. I, you know, I'll never forget one of my sons, he liked the color pink when he was some age, some young age. And then one grade in to school, he hated it. And I was like, what happened? Like, you like, you were delighted by that color. And it, you couldn't be because there was all the, you know, the, it was gay, it was this, it was that. And I kept trying to say, India loves pink, India loves orange. You know, I tried everything I could, but I couldn't get him back. And, and I saw the sort of the pernicious effects of, like, he couldn't like what he liked. He had to change something he liked. And, you know, I don't, who cares if he likes pink or whatever. But I wanted them to, to, to articulate what they were feeling mm-hmm. and not feel scared of doing that or have to pose in a way. Do, do you feel... Uh, a certain responsibility, especially right now, in terms of how important it is to raise boys into yes. good men. Yes, given spent a lot of time. This moment in 100%. history, I spent a lot of time. You know, uh, during the Kavanaugh hearings, we talked a lot about that. Um, I, when I, I, my oldest son, he's a big guy, and I'm like, when you're at a party and that, and some woman's vulnerable like that, you better get in there and pull these people off, or, you know, that's your job to be a good man. And I think, I think I, we spent a lot of time expecting a lot of them in terms of being a decent human being. And it's hard. It's not, you know, they have so many advantages and privileges. And I think I don't want to guilt them about it. They have what they have. But I want them to understand that not everyone feels safe, that not everyone gets these things, that not everybody. So they have some sort of empathy Mm -hmm. for people. And it works sometimes. It doesn't work other times. What's become so evident over the last, you know, few years is the, the, the rampant sexism Across corporate America, but especially mm-hmm. in Silicon Valley, yeah, sexual harassment. Yep, has it happened to you? No, I can't imagine. No, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I worked for someone who I testified against, I, John McLaughlin, long time ago. Long time ago, he was sexually harassing a woman in my office, and I said, "What are you doing?" Like, you know, I testified against him when I was in my early twenties, and that was I didn't I wasn't conservative, so it was fine. I wasn't there was nothing at stake for me. I had nothing. To lose right, a lot of a women, big, big power play. Yes, and a lot of women have a lot to lose when they when they speak up. In that case, I didn't, so I could be brave. Like I was like, "You're so brave." I'm like, "I have nothing to lose." So, just speaking is not dangerous for me, as it is for other people. But um, it was it was a real lesson early on in my career of the abuse of power because it was not about it was it was about sex, but it was about power 100. Yeah. percent It was and it was a perverse way to express power um, over people. And he sexually harassed people. He also did things like line up people by height and and stuff like that weird stuff weird it was all power it was all about like i have control over you and and then i kept wondering what if his parents ever hugged him that's what i, that's what I thought he didn't get enough hugs as a kid uh one thing that i'm working on not, not great at um but you talk about is you make the case that being selfish is actually good yes. for other people it is Yes, that is my theory. Make the case. Well, because I make things, and so when I'm pleased with things I'm doing, people get jobs. Like, I'm creative. I've created a lot of businesses, right? And so I think one of the things, that, especially women, I, you know, I'm not a man, so I don't know how they feel, but um, is, is you're not allowed to say, I would like the mo- most money. Give me the most money. I would like this. I will do good things with it if I have it. And, uh, you, you know, when you're going for a salary raise, you know, you're like, oh, thank you. Like, not thank you. I'm doing work for you. How you know? have you negotiated? Uh, give me the salaries. most money. No way. I'd like the most money. No, you walk More, in there? Yes. So can you tell me a real story about I, I'm willing to leave. How did you negotiate your biggest contract? I'm willing to leave. 
I'm willing to leave. And I, I'm actually willing to leave because I always know I can do something. Like, that's the whole thing. And I think a lot of people are taught that they're, that, it, that this is their only chance. And they, we teach our kids like that. They, we put them on the achievement wheel, mm-hmm. and then they are constantly achieving, and they're never thinking, what, is, what makes me happy? What mm-hmm. makes me, what, what am I good at? What am I passionate about? And I think if you're passionate about what you're doing, you have an up on everybody. Like, you, you just, you can walk away. Like, did, did becoming a parent make you better at your job? Yeah. Because I have so much less time now. Yes. Like, everything because feels you do more, right? so condensed. Yeah, but you do more, don't you? Yeah. Yes, and I'm just sort of amazed by it, but I hope... Because it focuses you, right? I was always focused as a yes. person, but I think what happens is I got much more successful after I had kids, much, because I didn't have time. Like, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for this. And I remember going back to the office at the Wall Street Journal, and the editor, one of the editors I was talking to, not Paul Steiger, one of the lesser editors, um, and I had broken all these stories about the Internet. I was a top reporter there in my field, in my area. And I'll never forget this. an older man, and he said, I guess you'll have less time now for all your, because you work so intensely. And I, and I was like, so I tried to, I was going to This is when you were pregnant? No, I had just had the baby. Just had the baby, okay. And, uh, and he goes, I guess you'll have more time now. And I go, why will I have more time? And he was like, uh, I go, more time? Why would I have more time? I don't understand. Why, yeah, less time. Less time. And he was like, he's like, well, and I'm like, it's not because I just had a baby, because that would be illegal for you just to say that. And he was like, uh, and it was like, because, you know, that's wrong, because right. you have a baby, and do you have less time? And so it, it never, And I said, never say that to a woman again. Don't you ever say that again to a woman. And it was great. It was good. And you didn't get fired. Why would I get fired? You left. Why did you leave? Because I Rupert Murdoch. Really? Yeah. Tell me more. He's awful. That's so, truly why you left the journal? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ultimately, yes. It wasn't because you thought I'm good and I can build my own thing? Well, they weren't giving us the assets we needed. We needed, you know, we were a small business there, but we were making, like, none of the reporters were making, like, profits for them. We were, we more than paid for ourselves by a factor of a lot. And um, they weren't entrepreneurial. That was one part. They didn't want to invest in some interesting things and take some risks. And they were putting money into things that failed later, that daily thing they did. Not the daily that the New York Times is doing. There was something else. I think it was called the daily at the time. They were doing things that I thought were stupid in the internet. And we had a great deal with all things digital. Mm. And we wanted to do all things fine. We wanted to do all kinds of things and they just didn't want to invest. And so that was one reason. The second one was they had that thing in the in Britain where he turned out he was tapping the cell phone of a, of a murdered young woman, young girl and I found that offensive and Walt did too Walt Mossberg who's my partner who's a great amazing mentor um, and he I just was like oh say Uncle Satan I can't work for Uncle Satan anymore so that's my name for him no mincing words there no but he is come on look, look at the damage Fox News has done it's just like you can't deny it like you can't deny that the degradation of all culture begins with the scream fests on cable both sides by the way all of it it's like both sides are bad like I sound like Trump there. Um, You know what I mean. I mean, I just think I just didn't want to work for someone I didn't respect. More from my interview with Kara Swisher after the break. Can we talk about death for a minute? Yes. So in all seriousness, I didn't know this about you until you wrote about Mm -hmm. it a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. You had a stroke Mm -hmm. and your brother saved your life. He did. And how old were you? Uh, forty-eight, forty-seven. 40, yeah, it was about eight or nine. Yeah. Do you almost 40. die? Um, I don't know. Who's to say? No, everyone can die. Look, Luke Perry just died. That's why yes. I wrote about it. Um, 
it was a very similar circumstance. He was talking when he had it, but they, you know, he had a more serious one. I had a smaller one. Um, there's no such thing as a small stroke, but it was a smaller one. And, and, I, and I got attention immediately because my brother, what I did is I called him. And I called him. I, text, I texted or emailed him and, uh, because I couldn't speak because I had a thing called dysphagia where I couldn't speak. Um, and I thought it was just a migraine. I had migraines for years. and It just you know, happened? It just happened. I, well, I was on a plane flight, and I didn't get up, and I didn't drink water. I was like the, the exact case that they talk about. And I didn't have the socks on, and I, it was I a mean, long, it was a, it was a transatlantic flight socks. to China. Um, and I wore them on the way here. Okay, um, And I, I didn't think it was what it was, and he immediately called me and said, get to a hospital right now. You have two hours or whatever since when I called him. So I did, and I rushed there, and they immediately did an MRI, which he told me to get, and then they medicated me quickly, you know, to the, with all the, 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 I forget what drug they gave me, but it was to, to thin my blood, essentially. And he saved my life. I could have had damage. I probably wouldn't have died of it, but I definitely could have had some damage. Your dad died when yes. you were five. That was in the back of my head when I had my stroke. He was so. 34. Right. And you've said the absolute nearness of it, mm-hmm. of death, has been ever-present for me. Yes. Well, I knew that, you know, everyone always says, live your live your life like you're, it's the last day of your life, and very well could be. And so I had the experience at a very early age compared to most people. You know, de- we keep death in such a strange place, like we pretend that not everyone's going to be gone. And I knew that that could happen at any time, and it could be sudden, like just like that, and your life would change, and that was that. And so I had that knowledge from a very young age, and so I think it changes you, and it makes you realize that. I think Steve Jobs wrote about it really eloquently. I talked about it in that piece about the... He, he lived his, his life like it was going to be his last day. And if you know that, it can be a real helper. Um, it can really formulate you. So that's probably part of why I'm super confident. It's like, what do I care? I'll be dead someday. Like, and I, sometimes when people are doing things that are against their best interests, sometimes friends or people in my family, they, and they get caught up into this smallness of, of things or the mundanities of things, I always turn to them, I go, you're going to be dead in 50 years. What would you do now? And they're like, what? I'm like, no, you're really going to be dead in 50 years. So, mm. But almost no one lives like that. No, they don't. I don't. I mean, it's I'm getting... I'm like, writing a book about it. It's going to be are. great. It's called The Secret. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Breaking news. No, what an awful book that I'm is. It's your fault you're not successful. <laughs> you quote um, a Buddhist teacher, mm-hmm. um, part of it, a secret death is a secret teacher hiding in plain sight. Right. I, I know that you've known the nearness of death since you lost your father at mm-hmm. five. Yep. And, I'm so, and then I had a stroke, too. And then you had a stroke. Which is a message to me. Which is a message so, that any time I get caught into anything, I go, oh, I could die. So what could be the worst thing that could happen here? So how have you lived your life differently since that stroke? Oh, I changed everything. I got divorced. <laughs> I got, like, I did everything. I, w- I worked more. I love work. I'm really passionate about work. Uh, I spent more time with my kids, just everything. I, but I didn't. What I didn't do, but which was interesting, yeah. was rest. Now you relax, appreciate life, stare at the leaves. I don't want to do that. That's what's, I did none of that. That's not living to you. No, I was like, I did a, an interesting TED talk on that because everyone sort of pats you when you have a near death experience. <laughs> like now you need to calm down and not be stressful. I'm like, stress works for me. Like so, it's I, I got I lived more. I lived more, more fully. Yeah, you know, there's a great. I love musical theater. I don't know if you. Do your so you live in New York? You're so lucky. Um, but in uh, uh, the the musical Mame, um, yeah. maybe in just the play, there's a play Mame and the musical Mame. She said she says life is a banquet and most poor suckers are starving. 
And I just love that. That's just a great idea. Like, that's what you sit so, around and deny yourself. So were you ever starving in life? No. Never. What, what, what or who fills you the most now? My kids. 100%. My kids. I think they're wonderful. They're wonderful young men. They, we have a great time. Um, I have great friends. I've got, you know. Do you think they're the reason that you're covering tech the way you are now, that you're calling out tech in this way, that you're talking about chief ethics officers? Well, I, I really mean that because yeah. I think what drives me in the stories I do that I care most about, mm -hmm. it's my children have given me an empathy I didn't know before. Yes. Yeah, I guess so. They're on it a lot. I think about the world that they're going to live in. I guess I do. I just, I, I just, it, there's a, there's a thing that I just interviewed someone who's kind of wacky, Chamath Palihapitiya. He's a venture capitalist, and he gave the this. That's the best name. Ever. I know, isn't it great? Yeah. He's he was an early Facebook executive, early AOL exec. I've known him for a long time, and he he's sort of his sort of blown up his whole life, and everyone can't believe it, you know. And I said, well, what was it? And he said, you know, the Italian word basta, and my family's Italian. And what does enough. that mean? Enough. Enough. That's enough. And I think I feel that way about whether it's Uber misbehaving and treating, uh, just being abusive to its employees or, or drivers or whatever, or Mark not monitoring his platform enough, or Jack letting everybody run wild on Twitter or whatever. I think I go, enough. No, you can't do that. This far, this far and no further. You may not do mm -hmm. that because mm -hmm. of society. Basta. Because, yeah, because it hurts democracy, because it, it, it diminishes our, the goodness of humanity. It appeals to our worst instincts, so I say basta. So this basta, this calling them That's out. That's Chamas, yeah. That is, that is your basta. public service right now, yes. I would argue. Um, but there's another way to serve the public. That's yeah. in public office. Yes. Are you still thinking about running for mayor of San Francisco? I was, but there's now this new mayor, and why would I want to step on her? Okay, like, but she's you're not amazing... like 100 years old. I'm, no, I mean, I am like at any time. I am 100 years old. Here's why. She, this is, is a young woman, African-American woman, who is uh, now, she's a native of San Francisco. I'm not a native. She's grown up there. And she, through the, the, the previous mayor, died suddenly, and she became mayor. Why would I want to step on her? Let's see if she can. She doesn't do a good job. Sure, I'd step on her. Like, I'd get in there. But I think we should give someone a chance. Someone like that, particularly, should be given a chance. I guess if it was an old white guy, I might move in there. Like, why not? All like, right. What about other public offices? Is Congress ever been appealing to you? I think about you? it. It's interesting. I just was invited to talk in front of the Democratic Oh, my gosh. Caucus. Your press secretary would just have the I hardest job in the entire world. I know. Wouldn't it be? You I, would it spout would be, off. It would be one controversy after the next, and then I'd be drummed out of office, which I exactly how I'd want to go, right? <laughs> Some horrible scandal or whatever. Uh, or what something I said that was wrong or something like that. You know, in weird ways, I always think, like, I, I, I've done it a lot. It doesn't seem to have... Someday, it's going to be a bridge too far. I think it's different when you're elected. No, it isn't. Not anymore. Trump has changed that completely. Trump has changed the political dynamic in that regard. In as much as I abhor most of the things he said, that I like. So you think you could I get... like that part. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, he's not, it's not modulated. And I kind of, he's just an awful human being and says terrible things about people and all kinds of people. But the fact that he's unmodulated, I think finally the cap is off on that mm. crap. Let's talk a little there, bit I about... I found one good thing to say about Donald Trump. There you have it. Breaking news. Breaking news. From Kara Swisher. Yeah, I don't usually, but I like that part. Right, you've been very clear about your politics. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about first. No, I don't like Donald Trump. I'm not. I, I, I don't like Donald Trump and what he's doing because he, I think he degrades our society and he's just a grifter. First, yeah. But so, I'd really like to do an interview with him. How's that going? Uh, well, you know, I bet he will. You have said a while ago you thought he, he would. I think he will. Why not? He, I think he's. He, do you have he a formal plays. request in with the White yes, House? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. 
Yeah. You check in on that every month or yeah, so? Every now and I know people there. It's so funny. One, someone who worked for me was like, oh, you're making my job hard for me because you say all these things. And then I took a picture from the West Wing of the way I was going in. I was invited in by some people there. And I took a picture. I'm like, working out for me. I got, they let me in. Um, you know how they you know how they are. What's they the try, most important? They do pretend fighting. They do pretend fighting. What's the most important question you would ask the president? One. You get one. One question. Why do you lie so much? I want to know. I want to understand that. All right. Let's talk about first before we run out of time. You had, if people haven't seen it, they should pull it up. You can still watch it online. The first ever joint interview with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And the first and only. And only, yes, I should say. And there is a phenomenal backstory to that. Yeah, there is. It's a great story. Share it. Well, Walt was close to Steve and knew I knew Steve pretty well, but Walt and he had a real bond, had covered his gadgets. And same thing with Bill. Um, and so what we did is we asked Steve first, because we knew Bill would do it if Steve did it. They had this, they had, they had this long-time rivalry and weird friendship, too. I mean, everyone thought they hated each other. It was more complex than that, because they were sort of the twin icons of the technological beginning of the technological age, really. Sort of like Edison and um, Ford, or you have to put Edison and Tesla or something. It was just, it was an interesting pairing of people that couldn't have done as well without each other there. And so we always wanted to bring them together. And they did, too. They wanted to do that interview. They couldn't have done as well without each other. They couldn't have. They couldn't. They pushed each other. You know, Bill was great on the execution not so great on the visionary ideas. Steve had some real troubles with Apple at the beginning. You know, he got thrown out and all, he had to learn his lesson and then came back. And his ideas and vision did ultimately shape what really we have today, you know, in terms of the iPhone and things like that and mobile. And so he, so we got them together. And what had happened is we did an interview with Steve before, a single interview with him before they were together in the evening. And Steve had, had crapped all over Bill again on stage. And that was one of the things is that Gates really got tweaked by Jobs, who was always the cool kid, and Gates was a nerd. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it really was that. that. And so they, the, what we wanted to do was a high-level discussion, but they always were people, too, and so they sniped at each other, right? And, and Jobs was just better at it than Gates was. And so we walked into the room, and we were like, oh, now we, we wanted a high level. This was, like, historic, right? Yes. And they were just sniping. And you're like, oh, man, they're going to just snipe, and this is not what we want. And so Gates was there, and he's, he's monosyllabic sometimes at best, kind of, he, you know, and he's got a little bit of the – he does the rocking. He doesn't do it as much, but he did it then. Um, and, uh, and so he, uh, he was very monosyllabic and wasn't – we were like, this is going to be a terrible interviewer. And Jobs walked in, and he was grinning, and he knew he had screwed with him and his, with his brain and stuff like that. And, um, and so they were sitting there, and, and Jobs wasn't saying – and what Jobs had said about Gates was Walt had asked him, how come iTunes was the most popular uh, software on Windows? And Jobs had answered – well, if you lived in hell and someone handed you ice water, you'd be happy too, which was so mean. It was so mean and so true. It was so true and mean. So it was both. That was why it was terrible. And so he had said that, and Gates was tweaked, really tweaked by this sort of disrespectful kind of attitude. And so they, he wasn't talking, and, and Jobs was grinning in, in the green room. And we were like, oh, this is going to be the PR people and all of us were like, oh, this is going to be a disaster. And, uh, and, Someone said something, and Gates like said, "I don't know what what I know. I I uh, I run hell," and 
I don't know how Jobs had this, but he had a, a water. He had, he had a, con, a, a bottle of water yeah. with condensed, you know, how that went yes. out really chilly. And he handed it to Gates and said, let me help you. And it broke the ice, so to speak. And it, that, then it was a fantastic interview. It was. And it you, was fantastic. It was it emotional. Was, it was I beautiful. I rewatched it the other it's week. It's great. It's a great interview. And you made them, mm-hmm. I think your first question, you start the interview by making them compliment each other saying what do you think each other has con- yes. contributed to the computer industry I was trying to get them back to the thing <laughs> but one of the things was because jobs would not have just getting along and so I said what's I tried to throw him another softball I said what do, what's something that you don't know people don't know about your relationship and jo- jobs goes and Gates was sort of sitting there doing his you know he's a more serious person his serious and jobs goes well you know for years now we've been married and this was way before <laughs> yeah, gay way marriage before. you know what I mean like it was anything and and you could see Gates going, oh my god, oh my god, I don't want to seem homophobic, and yet I kind of am, like most people. Like it was like he was sitting there with all these like emotions, and Jobs was sitting there just laughing. As he was just like, it was so mean, but so funny. And then he ended on a beautiful thing about the road together and the Beatles, and it was then everyone was weeping. It was it was it was that, a real highlight. Is that your favorite interview? The most meaningful it, interview you've ever I think, done? N- no, the last one before he died, before Jobs died. I thought that was amazing, amazing interview. Um, he was very ill, and you could, see, you know, he had gained weight and lost weight over the years. You could see the interviews. All there's eight of them actually, um, and he had lost a lot of weight, and it was so clear that he was near the end. And he was, he had a raspy voice, but he was still so vibrant, and that was what I loved. That he was. I know he's controversial. I know he was difficult with people, still. Like, still, he just was so uh, visionary in a lot of ways. And I know people can argue about that, but there's no question the iPhone changed everything, and he was behind the iPhone. Like, he was the major force behind it. And so he was super raspy, and, and I don't know why I asked this, and I think I kind of like myself for doing it because you could see he was going to die, but he didn't think he was going to die. He didn't live like that. He lived, he knew he was going to die, but he lived like he was going to live for, he, it was really interesting. And I said, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? which everyone was just, everyone was like, <gasps> and then he talked about what he was going to do. And he had these visions of television. He was going to do this. He was going to do that. None of which he did because he died a couple months later. But I love that. Like, ask that question. What are you going to do the rest of your life to a dying man? I thought that was a great question. And he answered it beautifully, by the way. What did he say? He said he was going to do TV. He's going to remake TV. I'm going to remake TV. And here's how I'm going to do it. And he leaned in and he was... He was so... He, he lived like he was going to die. Like, every minute counted for him. And so he wasn't going to... He wasn't waiting for death, but he was aware of it. And so that's how he pushed himself. And so I thought that was, I thought it was, that was the, one of the best questions I've ever asked. Isn't that kind of how you live? Yeah, that's right. I, I did admire that part of him. I did. I thought it was, um, he was, uh, he had a very difficult beginning. He was, he, you know, he was put up for adoption. And we had talked about that quite a bit um, behind, not on stage, actually. And uh, I think he made a lot, I, he, was, he was a really interesting character. And there, there's some great ones today, too, but he was pretty he was complicated and difficult and hard and soft, like not ever soft, but just, I appreciate, so I, I was, I've been lucky to be around like I think you appreciate Zuckerberg. complex. Yes, I appreciate complex, but I've been lucky to be around like these people. It's like being around Edison, like I'm there for these people who've changed the world, right? And I've had some impact on them. So I think that's, or, or some thoughts about them. And so I think that's well, important. I know you're trying to get through more mm-hmm. to Mark Zuckerberg right mm-hmm. now. Who do you think you've actually gotten through to or impacted the most? Um, all of them. All of them together. 
I, I think individually, I make them, at least I stop them for a minute. There's a, there's a, one of my favorite books is The Trial by Franz Kafka. Um, I studied, I studied at Georgetown and uh, a lot of existentialism. And so that book is at the end of, everyone thinks it's about something else and it's really about God. I think, I think I'm not a religious person, but it's about God. And so the first line of the book is, someone must have been telling lies about Joseph K because he was arrested one fine morning. And everyone thinks he was arrested, that it was a Russia, it was a Russian thing. Arrested means stopped. So he was stopped. So I think one of the things I do, and at the last bit of the book, uh, he's about to get executed, and the window flies open, and someone puts their, he sees in a distance someone putting their hands up. I think I stop people, and that's my job, is to say stop and think, and you, that's what I do. And I think that's what I, at least, they might go and do the same thing, but at least I stopped them for a second and made them think. And maybe they moved a certain way, and that's, that's what a good journalist does, I think. You also had the first interview with Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, joint yep, interview. I did. What does everyone not know about that? They're very close. I think everyone thought, oh, Mark's going to throw under the bus and this and that. No, he's quite loyal to her. And she did a lot for him in that period of time where they grew that company to enormous heights. And I think there, she was, he was there for her when her husband, who was a good friend of mine, died. Yeah. Um, he was, he's, he's a lovely person in that regard. Compared to a lot of sort of lethal people in, in business, he's quite heartfelt in that. I, I think that is one thing people don't know about him. I like him personally, I do. Do you think he likes you? Maybe a little bit. Do you, do you care? <laughs> do you I don't care? think he wants to see me anymore, because every interview he does is Do you always... care if people like you? No. No. How That's we, another good thing. How do we all get to there? I don't know. How do you do it? I don't Why know. do you care if stupid people don't like you? I don't think everyone around me is stupid. I know, but what do you care Neither if they do like you? Neither do you. You don't think do you everyone's care? stupid. No, I do, do care, care a lot. Why? I don't know. Why? Well, tell me why. I'm working on it. I that. think I'm right. I don't have to give a reason why. I just don't care. Why do you care? Um, I, it, just, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it, right? Well, I think there's a certain you want other people to be happy. Yeah, but you're not here to make them happy. You're here to make yourself happy. And if you're happy, they're happy. It's just okay. like, you don't have to have people. You, 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 it's nice to be you nice sound like to my people. husband. Oh, really? Yeah. Say, well, you know him. Yeah. Project He's 2019 great. for me. Great. He's the most important. Yeah, but if you stop caring, it's not being, I'm not telling you to be callous. Like, I don't care. I'm not saying you not to care about things. I'm saying what people think of you is not something you can do anything about. So, stop it. Stop it, Poppy. Project 2019. Especially when they name like Poppy. <laughs> Your name's Poppy. Project 2019. That I almost not, abandoned, by give, the way, when I got hired here. I thought no one would take me oh, serious. Well, I was like a two, you name? Know, 12 year old reporter. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, I don't think you can curse on this. I almost thing. Maybe you can changed curse. it back to my legal name, Catherine. Can you curse on thing? You know the, the book, uh, Not Giving Any Fks? People say, yeah. I don't give any That People always say that to me. Carol, you don't give any No, I give all the oh. I give every And that's a different thing. Not giving a makes you a callous, rude, awful person. That's not the way to live. It's saying, I care about this, and so I'm going to, like... But not caring what people think of you is giving f to yourself. Okay. Thank you. That is the philosophy Project of Project 2019. <laughs> I so let's end on this. All right. A really smart person once asked another really smart person this, so I'll mm -hmm. ask you. Okay. Kara Swisher, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? <laughs> Everything. Whatever I want. Lots of things. Is there a dream? Yeah, have some more kids. Really? Sure, why you not? You want more children? Absolutely. I want an army. You want an army Yes, children. like the Brady Bunch. That's but doesn't that mean you're not going to have as much time to get your job done? No, I'll, I'll be all right. <laughs> like that I'll bad boss right. once asked yeah. you that day? Yeah. Yeah, why not? It's nobody's business. I, you know. <laughs> 
I don't oh, know, lots hardly, of things. Hardly, everything. Hardly I'm going to do everything. Done. I'm going to do everything. That's what I'm going to do. And you're just getting started. That's right. Kara Swisher, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Poppy Harlow. All the time. I just really keep saying your name. You do? <laughs> I'm glad Poppy I didn't change it. I'm going to change my name to Poppy thank Harlow. Thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> CNN reached out to Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, and they did not wish to comment on Kara Swisher's remarks for why she decided to leave The Wall Street Journal, a News Corp-owned publication. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.